Welcome to the APL Next Ed Minipod, where for a few minutes each week, academic leaders share insights and perspectives on the most important issues and opportunities facing academic teams. Learn how other schools are managing and strategizing for success as your host, CEO and founder of APL Next Ed, Kathleen Gibson, gathers and connects practical seeds of knowledge and experience from her guests. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the APL Next Ed Minipod. We've been talking for several weeks with innovative academic and executive leaders about how they engage faculty around their missions. This week, we are joined by a truly creative mover, Dr. Nancy Coleman. Dr. Coleman is the Dean of the Division of Continuing Education and University Extension at Harvard University. Dr. Coleman is deeply committed to technology and innovation in online and place-based education that creates access and opportunities for learners of all ages, types, and socioeconomic backgrounds. She is passionate about leadership, international education, and she is an enthusiastic supporter of women and girls in their personal and professional development journeys. Before joining Harvard, Dr. Coleman led and innovated at many different types of institution, including Wellesley, Boston University, and KeyPath Education. In 2017, she founded the Contemporary Women's Leadership Institute, a global program for undergraduate women. Dr. Coleman is currently president of UPSIA, University Professional Continuing Education Association, the nation's largest professional continuing and online education association. She is the co-author of the Hallmarks of Excellence in Online Leadership, published by UPSIA in March of 2015. I'm excited for all of us to have an opportunity to learn all that Dr. Coleman has to share with us in these next few minutes. Welcome, Dr. Coleman. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Kathy. Well, it's wonderful to have you. I'm excited to hear about uh, what you're doing at Harvard and, and some of the initiatives and programs that you've put in place to um, help engage faculty, support faculty, and, and bring them around uh, in a connected and concentrated way around the mission of the institution. So I think the best place to start is, is a little bit of a history about the division that you work for at Harvard. So this uh, Division of Continuing Education and University Extension uh, seems to be sort of where schools are going in terms of contemporary initiatives, but Harvard's been doing this for a long time. Talk, talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. So the history of the Harvard Extension School goes back way beyond 100 years when we were founded as, um, as really an offshoot to provide part-time education to the men and women of Boston and Cambridge at that time. And it was a very innovative program where we would provide part-time learning opportunities from Harvard faculty to that local community. Since that time, we have evolved into what's known today as the Division of Continuing Education. And we really have four program areas. We have the Harvard Extension School, which is our degree granting entity. We offer both degrees and certificates and individual courses there for adult learners. Um, that has been our mainstay for, as I mentioned, over hundred years. Mm -hmm. We also run our summer school program at Harvard. We have a professional development program and we have a Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. So what intrigues me most about our mission and the work that we do every day is there is truly something for everybody here. Any type of, I guess, what's known as non-traditional learners, but I would say that they are probably the more traditional learners at, at this stage. You could start at the Division of Continuing Education as a 15-year-old pre-college student 
and really continue with us through your career, through your lifetime of learning, all the way into retirement. And I think that's a really intriguing value proposition. And it's something that I'm really excited about continuing to build the pieces together. Well, thank you for sharing that. It strikes me that we're all talking about lifelong learning and have been for a couple of decades in higher education. Um, it may be surprising to the audience, certainly surprising to me before I had a chance to, to learn more about, about the Harvard Extension School. Harvard really is, is someone who's been doing this for a long, long time. And it, this is not something that is a, a recent innovation, but something that they identified a century ago as a priority uh, in serving the people in their community. And so, again, might be surprising to some of our listeners. You took the position, I think, about three years ago. What have been your greatest opportunities and priorities? Of course, you know, in the midst of, of this two or three year tenure that you've had at the institution, we've had you know, this very strange time with the pandemic. How have you seen the pandemic and how have your opportunities and priorities been shaped by the pandemic and 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 what are you thinking about moving forward as you as you look toward the future mm. well it's interesting kathy because it might seem like 3 years but it's actually only been about 15 months since okay. i've been all right been okay the dean. um so maybe it seems like 3 years or 10 years <laughs> depending <laughs> on the scale of what's happened since that's right since one long day dean. as they say right that's that's <laughs> Right, that's right. And you know, this lovely picture of Harvard behind me is about as close as I have come to campus in my tenure. So my deanship has definitely been unique at this point. You know, we're mm -hmm. we're coming back to campus in a few weeks, and I'm very much looking forward to learning the other half of my job, right? That will happen when we get back to campus. But I think what was interesting and where we've really been focusing our attention during this global health crisis has been first helping Harvard and helping the Faculty of Arts and Sciences to which we are a part really prepare to teach remotely because with this quick shift that was required in March of 2020, as we all know, I'm sure we've heard from many other institutions, a lot of faculty, a lot of schools were just not ready to make the shift. And we have been teaching online. Um, our distance learning program started um, many, many years ago. So we have that pedagogy and we have a very talented team of teaching and learning professionals who immediately jumped into not only helping our faculty ready themselves for remote learning, but also helping other faculty around the university. So that's been the lion's share of, of what we're what we've been doing in terms of faculty support. And I think the intriguing thing to come out of this for us is that we're now seeing faculty who were, let's just use a kind word and say skeptical about teaching online, come to us and say, boy, you know what? This thing was cool. Uh, how about what's next? Or now I have questions about this. Can you help us even further? So I think from the position of continuing education, the global health pandemic has really helped us move the needle on online education and faculty support. And I'll be the first one to admit that when this all first happened, I was really worried that it would actually put us backwards where we are in our, in our pursuit of quality online education. The reverse have ha has happened. So um, we have really become very a very popular resource on campus to be able to support not only our own faculty and teaching professionals, but folks across the university who have questions about what is now possible. That's really terrific to hear. And I think 
again, maybe surprising that this is happening at an Ivy League institution where there may be even more sort of entrenched feelings about, or may have in the past been even more entrenched feelings about online education. Certainly we're seeing it at, at state institutions and at private institutions, the same sort of suddenly looking toward uh, those that we may have been skeptical of in the past um, for guidance and, and having um, a new sort of appreciation. And there's a new, I think, level of credibility around delivery of these courses in the mind's eye of some who may have been more skeptical in the past. So it's exciting to hear that that shift is happening. Again, my perception would be at an Ivy League institution where those those sentiments might have run even deeper, but also that there's been this sort of collaboration and connection between and among those who have the skills in online delivery and, and the sharing that's been going on with those who, who may not have been more as familiar with the pedagogy and andragogy associated with, with that sort of teaching. And the reality is access has always been part of our mission at the Extension School. I just don't think people have realized it as broadly as it has been realized. So the Faculty of Arts and Sciences always has recognized us as an access arm. So now that has just become a lot more available and a lot more open to populations who didn't realize it was an option before. That's really neat. One area that I'm really interested in as you as you talked about the four different audiences, if you will, or student populations that you serve is the retirement group. What is, what is the mission or what are the central goals around serving that particular group of students? Mm. So this is an interesting program and it's one that we're very much proud of. So it was, it was formed, it was it started by our former Dean, Michael Schnagel, who was Dean for many, many years at the Extension School, who he wanted to be able to offer continuous education and in particular peer learning to some professionals who had retired. And um, so the program as it exists today is a local program. It really is place, well, before the pandemic, it was very place-based where we had, we had students who opted into a membership model, very similar to some of the OSHER uh, opportunities that are out there at other institutions um, who would come into Cambridge and be taught by their peers who would then submit a syllabus, submit a course idea. And it was very much a relational close-knit group. I think we were very nervous about what would happen to this program during the pandemic because not to stereotype, but this is not an audience that necessarily has embraced online learning or has ever even thought about it as an option for them. What we're seeing now is that um, our students in HILR have responded very well to the pandemic and to the remote learning. And I think we're now thinking, could there be a supplementary, a supplementary model? You know, we're going to go back to in-campus classroom learning for HILR, for Cambridge and Boston and, and residents within commuting distance, but potentially there's an expansion opportunity to take some of this amazing work that we're doing for this community and expand it into an online model, which as you know, could have worldwide implications. So we're very much taking, taking a look at that and have received a lot of positive signals from our community on that effort. Yeah, I mean, it just strikes me that, again, these themes that we see related to experiential learning uh, related to getting sort of expertise into the classroom, whether that be through guest lectureship or through mentorship experiences, those kinds of things. It seems like these kinds of things where we're tapping into, I read uh, recently that one out of five 
people in this country in 2030 will be 65 and older. What are we doing to leverage and to take advantage of the, the wisdom and the experience and the skills of, of, of this demographic? If we're talking about lifelong learning, they indeed should be part of the equation. Absolutely. And, you know, I've long been a fan of this concept of global classroom. And when I say global classroom, I don't mean classroom with people from lots of places around the world exclusively. That's a piece of it, right? But we have an opportunity with online education to really take these disparate audiences and bring them together under one umbrella. So now you have these, you know, younger folks who are, you know, 23 and 24 who might be looking for their, for their first bachelor's degree in a class with people who have, you know, who are approaching retirement or who are retired with um, older working professionals, with people from their local area, with people from around the globe. And that really excites me because the diversity of experience and perspective that you can then put that together and teach to that, I think opens up more opportunities for one of the things that education is about and that shared understanding and meaning making and co-creation. So I could talk about that all day, so I'll stop myself, but I'm so excited about how we can do that in a more meaningful way. So super excited about that idea of the global classroom. And certainly I think, you know, we're talking a lot about the importance of diversity in the classroom, very often as it relates to other ways in which a class can be diverse and not so much generational diversity. Um, And think of the opportunities for, again, all students coming from sometimes two or three generations in the same classroom and the opportunities they have to learn from from one another. Uh, I love what you also said about this concept of, you know, education's purpose being about dialogue. I mean, certainly if there's (laughs) ever been a time in our country when it's been more important to remind students about how important it is to be in dialogue and to have conversation and to be able to argue one's position, but learn from others who may be arguing a different position, you know, that time has been now. And so again, you know, seems like what Harvard's been doing for such a long, long time has such a relevant sort of need right now. And that you are, and we're way ahead of the curve as it relates to what you're doing as a division uh, to serve a very broad audience as it relates to higher education, which kind of brings me to the next question. Uh, I know you guys have a very different sort of model in your division for faculty hiring. It's not the typical, more traditional undergraduate faculty hiring that involves looking for Uh, scholars to come in and teach on a tenure track. Could you talk to us a little bit about your model for for bringing faculty in to to build and to lead and to teach courses and and the diversity of that faculty as it relates to where they come from, what their experience is, and then, you know, hopefully we can piggyback off of that and talk about how you engage all those different types of faculty. Sure. So I... We'll explain that after I explain the types of programs and degrees that we have. So I think fundamental to our identity is the fact that we are a part of our arts and sciences uh, division at Harvard. So there, so we have degrees and courses that are very liberal arts based. In fact, it's an enormously diverse catalog full of really interesting liberal arts courses. I'm taking my first course at Harvard this fall and 
there were so many to choose from. I didn't, I didn't know what to pick, but anyway, that's a different story. Um, so we have the liberal arts component. We also have a number of professional degrees and certification programs and how we think about the faculty model is it's a blend, right? And so we try to pull in faculty from uh, the Division of Arts and Sciences at Harvard, but also other schools within Harvard. Harvard is one of many degree granting schools within the Harvard University umbrella. And that gives faculty an opportunity to teach things that they may not be teaching in their day job, right? In, the, in, their, in their regular undergraduate or graduate classroom and to maybe be a little bit more experimental with us, which has always been a selling point for Harvard faculty who wanna teach with us is this innovative component. I can try something different and I know Extension has a really innovating teaching and learning team who can help us. On the other side of that, we have more of a practitioner model. So we do hire a number of faculty from outside the university to work with us on a contract basis to teach things that are in the moment more professionally oriented. Some of our management courses, um, some of our computer science courses, these are people who not only have the academic credentials to be teaching, but have also done a lot of really current work in industry. And I think that blend of faculty, um, again, leads to a diversity of perspective. You know, you could take a course, you could take two, two courses a semester, one from a Harvard faculty, one from a really interesting practitioner who's, who's been doing this in industry for years and learn a lot, you know, they're both good, right? So, um, so that's how we think about that. And we're really always looking for who is the right type of faculty to bring in to our, for, you know, for our programs to make sure that we have that really marquee student learning experience and students are walking away with not only really critical academic theory, but also ways to apply it in real life. And that's part of how we think about our pedagogy. And so bringing these different types of faculty in, obviously, if you're bringing folks from one of the other areas uh, under the Harvard umbrella, they've got usually some experience, I would imagine, in teaching and maybe even course design. Then you also have, you know, groups coming in of faculty who you suggested are coming with not only academic credentials, but some level of expertise that they're able to share practical and applied sort of learning scenarios with students. How, how do you bring those varied groups together around the mission of, of the, the division that you're leading? And keep them engaged around that mission, ensure that they're properly supported and staffed, again, particularly given what faculty have been through, as well as the rest of us over this last, you know, 18 months or so. How, what are the specific sorts of ways in which you, you bring those groups together and you keep those groups engaged and, and you help everyone stay focused on what it is you're trying to achieve as a division? Mm, that's a great question, Kathy. And the answer is that our mission to serve adult learner population and our students are always at the center of everything that we do. And we have faculty, tenure track faculty who are full professors at Harvard who've been teaching with us for years. You know, they have a full load that they're teaching in their undergraduate curriculum. And they come back to us year after year to teach their course because they love working with our students. You know, it's different from them. It's a different perspective. And they know they can test new theories and get a different level of engagement that that years of experience brings. So there's many faculty who just really love, love our students. 
how do we engage them? I think by constantly reminding them about, you know, who we are, what, you know, what is the, what is the mission of our school to serve this particular learner population? And then giving them as much support as we can. We, as I mentioned before, we have a teaching and learning team and there are faculty development specialists on that, that, um, do nothing but help support faculty, not only prepare them for their teaching experience, but bring them together, introduce them to other faculty, put them in groups for peer engagement. One of the things I'm most excited about is a couple of months ago, we hired um, a new position for us. It's a senior associate dean of faculty engagement. And this person will, you know, we've, we've had faculty support and faculty leadership that sat in each of our individual areas in the past. Mm -hmm. The vision for this new position is to bring it together under one leader who will create an engagement strategy to continue to put groups together, introduce faculty together, think about new pedagogies. And even something that you mentioned before is that how do we integrate a more diverse perspective in our case studies and our examples and the work that and the actual physical assets of the class in a more meaningful way. So this new group we're calling, you know, everything at Harvard, like everywhere else is an acronym. So we're calling them FIA, Faculty Engagement and Academic Administration. We'll really think through what is that faculty engagement strategy and how do we build on the amazing work that we've already been doing mm -hmm. to bring these groups together. An example of that is tonight we have our annual fall instructor development night where, you know, unfortunately for the past two years, it's had to have been on Zoom, but traditionally it's on campus. It's a really big draw for both Harvard tenured faculty and practitioners who, who join us on a contract basis to really learn about some of the newest and most innovative ways to teach in the classroom and get a refresher on things like how do I put together groups more meaningfully? How can I have better discussions? So whatever the topic du jour is, and we're really proud of that activity. I think we do an excellent job with Instructor Development Night, and it traditionally is extremely well attended so that the faculty can meet other faculty and just really come together under this umbrella of idea sharing. That's terrific. It's, uh, you know, certainly I think for many institutions, and it's been my observation that, you know, if we haven't before, certainly the last 18 months has shown us that if we are going to have highly engaged and highly uh, successful and highly satisfied students, that in so many ways that begins with supporting the faculty and ensuring that they have the resources they need. And it sounds like some of the programs and models that you've built really are, in fact, uh, very useful kinds of tools so that I often refer to them as sort of our frontline workers, right? Are, they're the ones out there teaching, but also absorbing all that's happening in the worlds of, of all of their students. How do we make sure that we are ensuring that they have the tools they need for, for great pedagogy and andragogy, but also how are we ensuring that, you know, we're providing resources so that they are taken care of, if you will, for lack of a better word. Are there things that you're doing at the institution uh, that really go to sort of this whole person or this, you know, as a contributing member of, of the team, as, as, as a contributing important part of achieving the mission, what kinds of things does the institution do for particularly those who may be coming in on a contracted basis to, uh, you know, to feel 
not only like they have the tools, but that they're part of achieving that mission and that they belong to something bigger and that um, they even have a place where, you know, they can find some of the things they might need outside of the work they're doing in a professional context at the, at the institution. Mm. That's another really good question. And I think, I think the answer to that really lies in communication and intentional two-way dialogue, because it's, it would be easy to just say, here's your teaching assignment. Here's your canvas site, go forth and teach. And (laughs) that's not really going to help anybody, right? Because what we want to hear from them is what's happening in the classroom. What are students talking about? What do they want? What are they not getting in terms of support? Because as good as we or anybody else is, for me, it's all about continuous improvement and continuing to open up those channels of communication so that we know what's happening and we're engaged in it and it doesn't catch us by surprise. So we, we do things like I mentioned that instructor development night that we're having tonight, putting together, you know, we'll be building more robust communities online for faculty that's coming right now under, under our new dean who will take a look at that. and. I'm sure that there will be a lot more creative strategies that we will be deploying in the next few months and even over the next year to really think about this much more broadly, because there's a lot of people who have a lot of really good ideas about this, Mm -hmm. and it's time to harness that and really get it together and, and pull it together in a meaningful collective. It is an exciting time in that regard, because I think that, again, many schools are now finally thinking about and talking about Harvard may be an exception that has done this for a long time, but thinking about the faculty as a whole person and how you, how you serve that person who's an integral part of achieving your mission. Uh, I have just two other quick questions actually to get us wrapped up here. One is uh, you've been in the online learning space for a long time. I'm always curious as I talk to uh, schools that are doing all sorts of delivery now. And then, you know, as we spoke of earlier in this conversation, this uh, shift to at least uh, greater credibility around online delivery. I'm wondering, having come out of uh, several uh, leadership positions where you were doing a lot of innovation around online learning and best practices around online learning, are there things that you can point to that you you would suggest are areas that more traditional deliverers of education could learn from those who've been doing uh, online delivery for a long time? Are there two or three strategies or two or three ideas or two or three values that you think are well-developed and valuable in online delivery that could be, could be very useful and important to schools, again, who may have a more traditional mindset and, and are more focused on traditional forms of delivery? Yeah, I, I think that's... Um... First of all, there's so many resources out there right now. I would want to make sure that people are paying attention to the right resources. And, you know, a couple, so I have to put in a shameless plug plug for UPCEA, University Professional Continuing Ed Association. We have a group that's the Council on Online Learning that's not just for continuing educators, but also for schools who are building online programs and supporting online programs. So We have a lot of chief online officers who are members of that. The resources that come with being part of an association like UPSEA, or there are others out there as well, where you can talk to your peers, network. There's so much good reading and writing that is being done about this. There's so many best practice standards out there. 
So to pay attention to that and keep on top of it. And it's just, it's just critical. Um, the second thing I would say, but it's actually the first thing I would say is it's so easy in our world to get distracted by the shiny objects. Ooh, new piece of technology. Let's do that. <laughs> That's the answer right. to all of our problems. Trust me, it's not. The answer to the problems is a good fundamental base of pedagogy, of support, of, you know, it's, it's backbone. You need to build the infrastructure and the philosophy and the way that you will do this before you start layering on the shiny objects. And I think a lot of institutions see that, oh, that let's just, this technology piece is going to be the answer to our prayers or even get lulled into this false sense of security that, boy, this online world is easy. We can make a lot of money here. Let's do mm -hmm. that. That if you do it right and everyone should do it right, it is not easy and is not inexpensive, right? So it's figuring out what are the right reasons that you're going online? Mm -hmm. If you tell me, and, and it's funny because in one of my previous roles, I, I was a consultant and the first thing I hated to hear from any institution is we're going online because we need to generate more revenue for the institution. No, not going to work, right? If you're not mm -hmm. doing it for the right reasons, because you believe that from a pedagogy perspective or from a learner perspective, this is an important part of your portfolio, mm -hmm. then very rarely do I see institutions who are just in it because they want some additional revenue succeed. It's just mm -hmm. not, they're not making the right decisions to mm -hmm. go for the fundamentals. So I can get a little preachy on that, but I'll, I'll, I'll stop there and say that those are two really good pieces of advice. And I'll add one, one more. I think those of us who are, have been doing this for a long time are passionately committed to online education and have seen the outcomes and the transformations and the enormous effects, positive effects that online education can have on our students. And we like to talk about it. So feel free to engage the community. If you know someone who is doing this well, reach out to them and ask them, you know, if they'll spend some time with you. We, I don't know anyone in my immediate circle who is not interested in giving back some way and helping other institutions do this right. So we are a welcoming and accepting community that want to help. All right. You all heard that. <laughs> Email Nancy. No. <laughs> no, actually look at, um, and I call it Upsia. Maybe it's not the way everyone else says it, but um, oh, it is. It is it, okay. Yeah. So yeah, Upsia is a is a great resource. Um, they have a, a terrific daily blog that comes out, and and lots and lots of resources. So don't don't necessarily email Nancy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my last question really has to do with some of the work that you've done to foster the advancement of women in higher education leadership or in other sorts of careers as well. And I wondered if there's just in conclusion, one piece of advice that you would share for especially uh, aspiring women in higher education leadership. So someone who might be an undergrad right now, or even working on their dissertation in education that, you know, is aspiring to to lead in some way in the institution, in the academy, what sort of advice would you give that woman? I would say probably the most compelling piece of advice that I can think of is find a crew. Find people who have done this that are willing to not mentor you necessarily, but just share some of their insights with you. I see, you know, very similar to what I just said a few minutes ago about the online world. I think I know a lot of women who have come pretty far in higher education who are very vested in helping other women 
up the ladder as well and helping them learn and find people like that in your network who can help you grow, who can add different perspectives about different aspects of, of higher ed that you may not have and grow, you know, grow your network that way. It's, it's really easy to say that Kathy, I think Mm -hmm. in execution, being strategic about who's in your network and why, and how are you going to use them in a meaningful way takes, takes some thought. And I think, I think that's, I think that's a worthwhile investment. And secondly, don't say no to assignments. And now it's easy for me to say that because we've all done the right, you know, we've all read about women who take on assignments who may not be, who may, that may not be career focused, but think about doing some diverse things in higher ed, because one of the things that I know has benefited me in my career is that I've had a lot of different roles and that has really given me some different perspectives and I think makes you more valuable. And, and especially for women, that's a critical piece of advice. Yeah, that's terrific. I agree to wholeheartedly. I mean, my path is, you know, I ended up in ed tech software founder who, you know, was a poor math student. So, (laughs) you know, how those trajectories, where those trajectories take you is always interesting, but I was always an innovator and always somebody who wanted to experiment and try new things, even, you know, at a very conservative institution in a very conservative sort of role. And, and you're exactly right. I think being willing to try some different things and experiment and innovate um, and, and be yourself um, and be true to the skills and to your aptitudes, I think, uh, often affords women an opportunity to get noticed um, in ways they wouldn't have if they, you know, if they didn't take those kinds of chances and risks. So this has been a fantastic interview. It's been great to get to know you a little bit. And now I know what you're, you're really, uh, what really gets you pumped up. And so next time we have a conversation, I know we're going to stay highly focused on, on online learning and, and pedagogy and reaching broad audiences. So I'm, excited to have future conversations. Thanks so much for joining us today and for sharing your seeds of of knowledge, uh, these seeds of knowledge and experience with our listeners. Big thank you to our listeners too for tuning in. If this is your first week listening to the APL Next Ed Mini Pod, be sure to subscribe to our podcast. It's available on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music, and iHeart Radio. Uh, We release a new episode each week in two formats, a podcast and a video. You're welcome to learn from our guests in either format. You can visit us at aplnexted.com slash podcast to access the full library of episodes. And you can read more about Nancy and our other show guests and see links to additional tools and resources mentioned by our guests. So until next week, take care. And again, thank you so much, Nancy. This was fantastic. Thank you, Kathy. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you to today's guest and thank you to you, our listeners. You can find out more about our guest in the show notes. We hope the APL Next Ed Minipod is a helpful resource to you and your teams. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your colleagues. The APL Next Ed Minipod is brought to you by APL Next Ed, the leading academic operations platform helping academic teams connect and collaborate in one place. To learn more about how APL Next Ed is helping schools streamline academic operations, visit aplnexted.com.